you to turn in your Bibles this morning to uh, the book of Acts chapter 20. Book of Acts chapter 20. I want to just read one verse for you and then I'm going to read through most of the text uh, that we consider this morning as we work our way through it. Acts 20 verse 35. The word of the Lord. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Last night, I was invited by my brother to attend the, their company event, their Christmas event. And it was down at Hunterdon Hills Playhouse, so we figured I could probably find my way there with my wife. So he invited us to come. I enjoy Christmas shows. Um, the music was beautiful, uh, predictably at some level about Jesus. But it left me feeling kind of empty. Uh, because the Jesus that was celebrated as a sentimental Jesus. It purely focused on the fact that this baby was born and the mom didn't know and he could change the world. And that was it. Just a pleasant story without a savior. Last year, at the uh, Sand Center in Bethlehem, I attended a Harry Connick Jr. concert with my wife. At that concert, we, we had a great time. Uh, my wife loves his personality and style, in contrast to mine. <laughs> and uh, they started to sing the song, How Great Thou Art. I was like, wow. Because it's a song that in the American culture has a lot of nostalgia for people my age and above. And I was, because it was being done so beautifully, I was kind of caught up in it. I could not wait to get to the last verse. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. But on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And it was never sung. You see, there's room for a sentimental Jesus. But there's not room for a savior. And what I found to be so star striking and... Uh, Amazing. Last night and that night, songs about hope for change and peace in the world. And if people just rise up and be who they really are, things will get better. Doesn't that just fill you with hope? And I don't want people to be who they are. I want to see them transformed, just like I want my own heart transformed by the grace of God. So I was left with a, an emptiness. A few weeks ago, I challenged us about the topic of, uh, topic of generosity and justice. I've done a lot of reflecting on that over the last few weeks, and I thought
thought about the challenges that come, the objections that people have towards uh, generosity and giving. And I thought about it in light of the fact that within our church family, God, in his mercy, has done a good thing in raising up a good number of people within our church family who are participating in very beautiful things, uh, very helpful things, very commendable things, meritorious things. And I want to encourage that, and I also want to speak to how we how we and why we do those things, Uh, why we are and should be so deeply committed to a gospel-driven generosity, because I believe that is what the Word of God so deeply encourages us to do. So in this season of giving, I want to look at the motivation behind Christian generosity. What drives it, what lays as the rock bed foundation that sustains over time something that has been often neglected in the church. I want to talk about it by painting a contrast this morning. I'm going to quote from a pastor, his last name was Rauschenbach, he was a German uh, pastor in the late 1800s in New York City, lived on the edge of the city in a place called Hell's Kitchen. A place in that time of deep poverty and brokenness, of virtually unimaginable proportions. He served there and was exposed to very painful poverty, and it caused him to question traditional evangelism, which took pains to save people's souls but did nothing about the social systems that locked them in poverty. He began to focus on ministry to body and soul, but along with that, a shift in method came and a shift in, or along with that shift in method came a shift in theology. In time, he rejected the biblical doctrines of the truthfulness of the Bible and of the atonement and the work of Jesus on Calvary's cross. He taught that Jesus did not need to die to satisfy the just wrath of God against my sin in my place, but instead that he died as an example of selflessness spoke of Jesus as an example to follow, but not as a savior. And this is what kind of sparked in me last night and last year. This sentimental view of Jesus, a a palatable Jesus, a likable Jesus, who doesn't suffer for your sin to bear the wrath of God against you, but serves as an example of an honorable life well lived. And out of Rauschenbach's theology, There grew, because he was a very influential pastor, there grew a a social gospel, a gospel that was very committed to meeting the social needs of the culture, but said little, if anything, over time, very little, to the crying need of the heart that drives our generosity, and that is the good news that there is for us a Savior, and on the cross, my my burden, he gladly bore. And this message began to fade. In contrast to what happened in liberalism in America through people like Rauschenbach, there is the fundamentalist movement. It's what I grew up in, a very biblically grounded movement, very evangelistically based movement. But that movement tended to fall off the side of the wagon in another way. It purely focused on personal salvation and taught the gospel and called people to trust Christ, but didn't express any concern for the physical needs of people. 
and I would argue this morning, it, that it is impossible to read the Gospel of Luke as an illustration and not come away saying that Jesus was deeply concerned about our sinful state and came to seek and to save as a Savior. But he was also deeply concerned and deeply involved in the lives of people as a person who strove to meet their needs. So what happened over time was between fundamentalism and liberalism, there was a tension that grew and, quite frankly, a suspicion about those that were interested in social work. That they didn't care about the gospel, which in many portions was true, but also there was the concern that fundamentalists cared only about the spiritual well-being of people and cared little about relieving poverty and addressing systems that cause troubles in communities and those types of things. And in both cases, the accusations are both true. One forgot the gospel. One forgot to live the gospel. And so this tension kind of hangs over the church. Jonathan Edwards, in a brilliant and strong message called The Duty of Charity to the Poor, and Tim Keller quotes from this sermon in his book, Generous Justice, he said, Jonathan Edwards concludes the sermon by saying, where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms than the command of giving to the poor? Where is their command stronger with greater clarity than that? And I read you a few weeks ago a lot of texts from the Old Testament in an effort to kind of reshape our thinking a little bit about a God who deeply cares about justice and about his people who often ignore it. And don't practice generous, gospel-driven living. Edwards, Edwards argued that you do not have to change biblical doctrine of salvation to do ministry to the poor. In fact, he would argue that ministry to the poor flows out of a gospel-infused message and, in fact, is driven by it. He would argue that involvement with the poor and classic gospel sharing are indissolubly intertwined and wed together. That there can be no true Christian individual who does not practice some degree of concern for those that have less. That's what Jesus says. And James drives that point home. He says, faith without works is dead. Meaning it, it lacks the necessary vital signs of life, eternal life. Strong, very strong. I believe that charity is the context for the good news. How we live breeds opportunities to communicate that there is for people a glorious Savior. It, it opens the ears of people. That's what Jesus did, study his life. He spent so much time with the marginalized that he was ultimately accused of being their friend. And they were right. I love it. They say, well, you're the friend of sinners. And I think in his mind, he's thinking, well, duh. <laughs> kind of like when my cell phone goes off, I get that little whistle thing, like they get your attention. I can't, I can't do it, but you know the one I'm talking about. Every time my phone goes off, I have this image in my mind that God is trying to get my attention. I, I just have this kind of humorous as I hear it that sometimes God is like, hello?
the gospel of Jesus rightly understood will drive a charitable spirit in the church of Christ. And I would argue, we, we often talk about striking a balance. And sometimes I, I get a little personally suspicious in my own life when I talk about striking a balance. It seems like I want to carve out areas in my life where I can do what I want to do with what I have. As long as I'm balanced with some generosity in my life. And I would argue that Jesus calls us to something more radical than that. I would argue that we don't need to have a balance between gospel proclamation and acts of charity. I think we need to do both. I think the issue is a matter of obedience, not balance. I think far too often we are striving for a balance that leads us to disobedience. We as believers need to be both. We need to be people who are generous, driven by the gospel. And we need to be people who are driven by the gospel to share it with those who desperately need to hear it. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, clarifying his life, he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, phase one, and to give his life a ransom for many, the gospel. And I would argue that the sacrificial life of Jesus was driven by the cross. That the love of Jesus for less fortunate, think about this, for the sick, for children, for widows, for rebel tax collectors, for centurions, Jesus. Jesus. And folks, if you wanted to come and, 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 and position your life for power, you would not do it like Jesus did. You wouldn't. And so, this morning, I... I want us to think about our celebration of Christmas, of the coming of Jesus, and the glory of the inception of the gospel and the incarnation, and our acts of charity, and, and understand that everything we do, everything that we do in terms of our generous love, gospel-driven love, must be gospel-saturated or we will miss the main thing. And I thought of this, I thought of Luke 2, when the angels come to the shepherds, another outcast group that became insiders. They, they came to the shepherds, and here's what they said. Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill towards men. For unto you is born today in the city of David a Savior. Now, folks, the reason Jesus came was to seek and to save that which was lost. He did it in the context of charitable acts towards needy and rejected people. That's the life of Christ in a nutshell. Moving towards a glorious redemption for people of all kinds. And an interesting side note to make is that Jesus also spent a substantial amount of time with somewhat wealthy people. So there was in his life, in that regard of charity and communication, a balance. He didn't ignore those who had more, but he did challenge them very strongly. Charity without the gospel is like listening to how great thou art without the cross. And as Paul Harvey used to say, it's like listening to the story without the rest of the story. And folks, if your understanding of Christmas is purely the sentimental side that you're moved in your heart by that manger, you're missing the point. If you don't see cast over that manger the shadow of the place where your sin is paid for, I want to challenge you this morning to realize that you need to run to Jesus. 
And you need to know that he is not only a generous and incredible person, but he is a glorious and wonderful Savior. So Paul's example in Acts 20 that I think helps us to kind of work through understanding what it is to live a gospel-driven, generous life. That's where I want to turn our attention this morning. So go with me to the earlier portion of Acts 20. And I want to read uh, verses 17 to 21 that sets context for where we will move this morning. This is Paul's last visit to the church of Ephesus, which, and you'll know from this text, he, he has a deep affection and love for this church. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time while I was with you, that from the first day, day one, I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by plots of the Jews. That is the opposition in which Paul lived. He says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks, that is, I did not discriminate. I proclaimed to Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus, which is to say that Paul, in his preaching and in his living, was gospel-centered and gospel-driven. It It permeated and saturated his very existence. It was always and ever present. Now, Paul's generous, gospel-driven charity, what what were some of the marks of it? What are the the, the key characteristics of it? And that's what I just want to look at with you real quick. First of all, in this text, I see that there is a humble service towards others that marks Paul's life so much that he can actually talk about it in a way that at first I hope feels odd to you, right? Because it's like Paul saying to them, hey, you remember how I lived among you. I was all about that service and all about that love and that was me. So you start to question, why is Paul, why is Paul referring to his own life, right? And the thing you have to understand is that Paul is for these people, their spiritual father. And there are times that a spiritual leader who has been with a congregation for a season of time should be involved in opening their heart and explaining motivations and activity, how they spend their time. Paul had no problem doing this. I take it as a parental, pastoral exposition of life, putting it forth as an example that others can follow. So Paul can talk about how he lived there. And he could say, you know, from the beginning to the end of my ministry, I was devoted to this kind of selfless living and humble life. And I love how at the end of it, in verses 20 and 21, it is a life and message about Jesus that ends in the gospel and a call to people to experience the converting power of God. It's not left aside. It's embedded in the message about service. And I think that is unique and powerful and challenging. Truth for Paul was coupled with visible, active, selfless love. And if you want to say in that sense, Paul was balanced, I'll give you that. I think it was there, both spoken. And one way I think I would apply this principle personally to my life is that my life speaks before I open my mouth. See, Paul went there, he began to serve there, and then he began to speak there. 
his charitable acts, his generous justice, the pursuit of it, gave him an audience that led to repentance and faith on the part of people. You see, I think sometimes we feel so awkward about sharing Jesus with people and somewhat stifled in it because we are not deeply involved in the lives of people. We don't know what's going on in their life, so we can't speak to their real issues as to how the gospel would bring them relief. But see, I think there is no evangelism apart from relationships. Jesus met with people and spent time with people and understood what was going on in their lives and then turned on the light of the gospel. May God help us to do the same. So Paul's life at one level is just marked by a humble, predictable service that I think at the end of the day, if he's writing this to them and saying, you know that I live this way, I think they had etched in their minds a serious understanding of the reputation of Paul's life. That Paul was a man who served others. And I, 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 I want to take you to verse 34 real quick because I, I'm going to hit this text from a different angle when we get there in a moment. Verse 34, he says, you yourselves know that these hands of mine, and I, I imagine Paul sitting in front of the elders of the church, you know that these hands of mine, I love the image. He says, you know that with them I have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. To me, that is striking. Paul did not simply take responsibility for himself, forget you. Paul took responsibility for himself and practiced a form of generosity towards people around him because he was driven by the gospel. Second thing I want you to note in verse 22 and following. Paul says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, but there you should start to get, as you read that text, and a sense of ominous and foreboding. I don't know what awaits me there. And then notice what he says. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me. So the the Spirit of God was ministering to the heart of the apostle as he lived his Christian experience and was preparing him for what was to come. Paul was listening. His ministry, his gospel-centered charity was driven by a sensitivity to the direction and call of the Spirit of God. Folks, here's a challenge I would give you. When you hear the Spirit of God speak, be responsive. Secondly, if you're not in the practice of listening, take a text like this and let it confront your heart. And ask yourself, am I living in an expectation that the Spirit of God is going to guide and prompt and direct my life for the glory of God? That's how Paul could see this. This was his experience of the presence of God. He was compelled and warned by God so that he would steal his heart and strengthen the foundation of his life and cling more to the gospel so that he could endure successfully the storm that was about to come against him. I wonder this morning, what is it in the, in, the, in the realm of generous Christian living that the Spirit of God has been prompting you towards? What, how has he been speaking to you through the testimonies of people around you, through the Word of God spoken, through your personal reading of Scripture, through meditating on the life of Christ, through thinking on the incarnation, how Jesus moved into your neighborhood to make a difference in your life? 
Think through those things. Let the Spirit of God begin to prompt, become prayerful and sensitive as you listen. 25 through 31. And th- so the second point is Paul's life is marked by a trust in a sovereign God in all things, even hard providence. Verse 25, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. So what Paul is saying in this text is a farewell address. Okay, and the last words of people are often quoted because they contain the most important thing to that individual. And Paul speaks, therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent from the blood of all men. Here's reputation again. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves. And all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God that he bought with his own blood. Now you see how Paul uses this in context. Paul talks about the fact that the church is precious to God, blood-bought. Therefore, those that are responsible for the leadership in that church should take serious heart as they steward the responsibility of leadership because they understand that the people there belong to Jesus. And that is, for Paul, that's motivating. This gospel that he preaches is motivating. A life marked by deep passion for the gospel. That's the other thing that I would say. And I... I, I, what I want you to realize is as you go through this text, verse 21, verse 24, and verse 28 are three very strong declarations of gospel truth and gospel proclaiming. Three times. Okay? Three times. Here's what I would argue. I would argue that gospel speaking permeated the life of this generous, just man. It was ever-present. It was always on his mind. It is what he meditated on. It is what he treasured. What Christ has done for him and how he had rescued him from his rebellion and sin and turned his life around and made him a lover of people that he once hated. That's Paul's testimony. A life marked by deep passion for the gospel and a desire to make in all things Jesus known. And I think Paul would say that because the gospel of God's grace, when it is rightly understood, when it is rightly treasured and loved, will produce within us a generous charity that is gospel-driven. I quote for you from 1 John 4, 7. John says this. He says, and answering the question, does the gospel motivate generous living? Dear friends, Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. It is the essence of his being. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And then John, about a verse later, says this. He says, if God so loved us in that sacrificial sort of way, then isn't it logical that we would then have the same kind of love for one another? You see, what is, what is John saying? John's saying, as I meditate on and treasure gospel truth, the implications of it in my own life, I cannot suppress the generosity that begins to well up and overflow. 
because it is a generosity driven by a deep degree of gratitude that wells up and fills up the heart to the point where it begins to flow over. I think that's what you're seeing in Paul's life. A man who never got over the fact that he had been rescued from deep rebellion against Jesus, was confronted by Jesus prior to any reformation on his own part, and was converted and changed and became a lover and proclaimer of Christ. John says now, and I challenge you to do this in your own heart. Think back to when the gospel became clear, when the penny dropped, when the light went on. And you understood that for you, in spite of your sinfulness, you know more than anyone else in your life knows. He loves you. And he died for you. And he seeks you. And he aims to save you. Folks, that remembered that remembered will change your life. And I think we spend far too little time meditating on the gospel. And Paul's life was saturated with it. It was marked by it. This text three or four times makes much of the gospel as the ground of Paul's life and as the motivation behind his charitable activity. The last thought that I want to touch on emerges in verses 32 to 35. And by the way, the last part of that last paragraph deals with false gospels that would travel around that Paul is encouraging the elders to be aware of any type of theology that would promote performance as a means of salvation. Because whenever you make performance the means of salvation, you are automatically ostracizing many who live with the burden of guilt. Who feel that if you come to God via performance and reformation, self-reformation, then I'm without hope. Folks, that's exactly what happened with the Pharisees at the time of Christ. And I believe Paul's warning the elders of the early church to watch for the same insidious thing that begins to think that because my life is somewhat cleaner than others, it is therefore more loved by God than others. That's not true. This last paragraph then. He says, now I commit you to God. And to the word of his grace, which I think is very simply a summary statement of the gospel, the word of the grace of God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is full of grace and truth. I quote John 1 for you. I believe Paul, when he says the word of grace, is talking about the full story of Jesus, who wasn't just born for sentimental value, but who in fact did accomplish something on Calvary's cross in relationship to the wrath of God that I deserved. He bore it in my place. Paul says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, the promise of salvation through Jesus, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It can give you a place with God as a result of Christ's grace to you. And then he says this. He says, I have, coveted, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. The currencies of the day were not paper and metal. They were Gold, well, which is metal, I understand. I didn't mean not metal coins and paper, okay? You understand what I'm saying, not our currencies. Uh, clothing was a sign of wealth. It was, it was a sign of position in life. It was, Jesus talked about, oh, you guys love to walk around in your long flowing robes because it gave status. It, it's, it, you know, see, I always get, concerned to say things like this because you might think take it absolute it's like not everybody that drives a nice car drives it for status but some people do drive their cars for status okay is that fair enough not saying if you drive a nice car that you're driving it for status okay just 
to be clear. <laughs> Paul understood he lived in a world where people had nicer things than others. There was a natural tendency that we have to defeat. Our natural tendency is, and I love nice trucks, okay? I would love to drive a brand new truck. I don't because I have other priorities in my life that forbid that right now, okay? So when I see someone's nice truck, I'm not happy for them at first. My first response is, I would look good in that truck. <laughs> My wife should have the privilege of seeing me pulling behind the house in that truck. Okay, that's, and it goes into, on into much more sinful categories for me. The coveting is insidious. To be dissatisfied with what I have is so easy. But understand that when you let those tentacles reach into your life, they will stifle any charity in your life because you will always feel that you never have enough to help someone in need. I'm telling you, it's the way it is in your pastor's heart. Paul lived in such a way that he shattered that bondage. He broke it off of his life. He was afraid of it. And he could say to them, you know. And, and, and notice what he says. He says, you yourselves know that I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Here's what this verse, I think, takes on beauty. Paul could hold his hands out, hands that had been beaten, broken, brutalized by a hard life. And say, you know how I use these. Here's what's fascinating. Paul had the right to monetary support from the church. It was just throughout scripture. What did Paul say? For right now, I know, and it's, it's right for people to take it. But Paul understood something. In that context, where money was so coveted, he had to fight against it. By working with his own hands and providing for himself and the needs of his companions. That fact, he's the leader. And he's devoted to caring for them. Folks, do you, do you see Jesus in that who washed the feet of his disciples? Paul had been infused with the gospel. He was so treasuring the gospel of Christ in every way that it was affecting his life deeply. My challenge to the church is, to us is, to myself is, do, am I fighting coveting? Am I aware that it is so dangerous and strong? I have four pastors that I have drawn help from over the years. Uh, John Piper, Josh McDowell, uh, David Platt's another one. I think I could put it in the list, but I didn't verify it. Rick Warren. And... Uh, John Stott, an Anglican preacher in England who held to the truth of the gospel while the social gospel destroyed the Anglican church in England and killed it. And most of the churches in England today are becoming mosque because of the social gospel. Okay, we must fight for the gospel, but we must do it knowing that there is a, there is a tendency in our hearts that will dilute our love for Jesus and our love for Christian generosity, and that kills the church. John Stott, John Piper, Rick Warren, and who was the other one I said? Josh Mc... David Platt, yeah. And I think Francis Chan is in this category, but I didn't verify. 
I was listening to a talk by John Piper recently. That man has written a lot of books and has sold a lot of books. You know what he did when he wrote his first book? He set up a charitable foundation and has never sought to aggrandize his life through gospel ministry. Folks, I want to tell you something. Of the four names he gave you, those men who are so afraid of coveting, so afraid of wealth, that they gave it away. Rick Warren's book sold over 40 million copies. Folks, you don't have to be smart to do the math. He gave it away. Never touched it. Those are four pastors. John Stott is another one who's at home with the Lord and receiving his reward. Those are people I respect. But see, people ask me about certain authors in the Christian community. All I can tell you is I am exceedingly uncomfortable with people who have aggrandized their personal life through the gospel. Those men I mentioned to you, and I'm sure there are some women in the same category, have made a commitment that I think is preserving their life. One of my pastor friends, Harry Stolliker, his best friend was going out to speak for John Piper at a conference. And we've always kind of joked around about John Piper because he just, there is a presence of God when he proclaims truth that is enviable in a good way. I think this is a good covenant. God, use me. John Piper picked him up at the airport. Drove him to his house and this guy got in his bedroom and he picked up his cell phone and he called Harry and he said, I know the secret. He said, that man lives the humblest life that one can imagine. Drives the junkiest old car on the planet, one you would never covet. <laughs> and for this man, and that's, that's what John Piper believes God had called him to. He doesn't take any of his honorariums. None. He has the people write the check to the church or to a ministry. I love that. Paul says, you know I coveted nothing. You saw me, you watched me, you know the truth. So the question becomes, do I so love Christ that I fear anything that would compete for affections that belong to him alone? Does that make sense? Folks, be careful of the things that you allow to come into your life that compete for affection that belongs to God and the gospel. Be very careful. Verse 35 is the verse that drew me to this text. Here's what Paul says. He says, in everything I did, everything, I showed you that by this kind of hard work with my hands, we must help the weak. It is an obligation on the part of Christians to care for. It is an ought for the church to meet the needs of the less fortunate. These are commands in Scripture that are so seldom preached and driven home into our hearts that it shouldn't surprise us that there is little activity often. I thank God in this church. I thank God in this church that there is a wave of that kind of love rising. My, my passion is that that would join with a gospel proclamation that turns us into a place where the name of Jesus goes forth and the love of Jesus Christ is expressed both 
as an obligation of the church. Paul says we must care for the weak. And in context, you understand, he gives a quote from Jesus. He says, it is better to give than it is to receive. I say to young people in our church, that is not a slogan for football players. Okay? Even though Jesus said it, it's not for football. It's for life. It is better to give than to receive. Do you really believe it? I love, I love receiving. <laughs> I do. The truth. Jesus says giving is better than receiving. When it is received into a heart that is gospel saturated. Because that receiving becomes opportunity to do more giving. And the way that Jesus is saying is to give stuff away is better than to accumulate stuff. This is hard territory. And how to work that out. You've got to be sensitive to the spirit and listen and listen and listen. We must care for the poor because it is what Jesus did. The church doesn't have to say, what did Jesus do? The church should ask, what did Jesus do? Yeah, I said that, right? What did Jesus do? That's what we need to ask. Not an opaque question that leaves it up for grabs. What would he do? Why don't you ask, what did he do in the situation you're facing? Because he was there all the time. Folks, you understand this. In the incarnation, one writer said it this way, Jesus moved into your neighborhood, and he bore your sin and your rebellion, and he took it to the cross and rescued you after serving you. And he says to you, what you saw me do, go do it. And I challenge you this morning, church, that we, we need to examine our lives and, and ask ourselves some very poignant, simple questions. Uh, I think we need to challenge the idea that we are so devoted to us and ours that we have very little time for them and theirs. That's a passion I have. I want to be respected as a good parent. Often more than I want to be respected as a good pastor or a Christian. That's sad. I love the kudos. Someone said something about my kids. And I can crave that. And I can tell you this, that's a sinful craving. I'm happy for them. But if I want the applause, and that's my driver, I got a problem. I got a problem. You say, are you proud of your kids? Yes, <laughs> I am. But I'm afraid. In certain ways, that I focus more on us and ours than them and theirs. And I don't know how to square that with the broad teachings of Scripture. I don't know how to square it. It needs to be both. It should never be either or. So I challenge you, think about your life and the devotion of your time and resources. I think the summary of this text very simply is preach Jesus and help the poor. And never stop doing both. You see, the, the real needs of people will not be met through your charitable giving. Those are temporary. People have an eternal need. And that's why the gospel must be proclaimed in the context of Christian charity. Gospel-driven charity is what solves the problem. That all that is being done is with an aim to bring relief temporary and hope permanent. That's why the song not being sung with the final verse is such a pain to the heart of a believer.
one last uh, thought. Because this comes to mind, and I thought of it the other week after I got done. Should we be generous to people who are in their situation because of bad choices? Because I think that the thing that probably stifles generosity, gospel-driven generosity, more than anything else, is statements like, well, their need isn't that great. Or they wouldn't be in that situation if it wasn't for their dumb choices. Ever felt that way? I have. I feel that way so strongly at times that I, I actually adopted a practice at the office when people would call for financial help from the church. I'll give you one illustration. A person called up and said, Pastor, I'm out of money. I said, how do you get my number? I looked it up in the yellow pages. That's indicator number one. Secondly, I can't afford to buy my prescription. I said, okay. And I, I come committed before God that I would deal with these things like seriously. But I had a, had a sieve because I think we should act in charity in wisdom also. As long as wisdom isn't constantly excusing disobedience. I said to this individual, I said, look, what, what pharmacy uh, are you buying your prescription at? And there was a pause. Significant enough pause that I thought they were thinking of the name of a pharmacy. And they came up with one. And I said, well, listen, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to call the pharmacy, turn your prescription, and I will call with the church credit card and pay for your prescription. Click. So well, what am I saying? What I'm saying is this. There's the need for wisdom in generosity. When it's blind, it may be helping all the wrong things. So it needs to be thoughtful. And Paul, I think, was so involved with people's lives that he knew the genuineness of the needs or he had the ability to give guidance and, and structure to the gifts that were being given. That's what we just went through this past week as a church family, distributing the generous gift that came in from this church family to the needs of others. A lot of time on the phone talking through how needs should be approached and what's the, the, the best and right way for that to be done that helps that maximizes the gift that people have given to help people in deed. And that happened for the glory of God. Is there the potential that some will get wasted? Yes. And if your qualifier is, I will never give to someone who might waste it. And I want you to think about something. I want you to ask yourself the question, when did Jesus show his grace to you? This is gospel-driven. Did he offer you salvation in exchange for anything? Did he offer you salvation because you finally started making good decisions? Or because you, you went through a period of reform. You stopped doing bad things. You weren't yet converted, but you stopped doing bad things. And he was more inclined to love you because you had shown some hope. That's how most of us think about charity, folks. It's gospel denying, and in fact, it's gospel belittling to say that I give my help to people, my gospel-driven help, when they deserve it. Jesus came and gave it when they need it. So I just ask you, wisely, generously, gospel-driven. Gospel-driven. That the aim of every temporary blessing is that there would be an opportunity for an eternal benefit in a person's life through the blood of Christ. That's why Paul could say, 
I can tell you I am free from the guilt of any man's blood because I've shared the gospel in every circumstance as I've worked with my hands, drawing people to Jesus. Jesus moved to help me in spite of the fact of my spiritual troubles, in spite of the fact that they were of my own doing. And one writer said, the light really goes on when I look at a needy person and I realize I'm looking at myself. It changes everything. Tim Keller said it this way. He said, the gospel pushes the button of Christian generosity. When you understand how much you are loved and how richly treasured you are by Christ, that you receded with him in heavenly places, that all of the glories of heaven are yours and you're a rebel, undeserving. Brought to life by the gospel, forgiven, changed, adopted. He said, when you meditate on that, it starts to push the button and bring a change in your life that makes you someone who works hard with your hands to bring relief to the needs of people around you along with the proclamation of the gospel. May God help us as a church family to continue to do what's happening, to do it more and more, but with a heart that is ablaze with the gospel, that is overflowing with gratitude and thankfulness so that the people around us live in the effect and overflow of gratitude to God and they ask you, what is your problem? What makes you so different? May God help us. Father, as we go from this place today, in this season when we remember that Jesus did in fact move into my circumstance and my neighborhood, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth when he could be my judge. Jesus, for your sacrifice, thank you for your humble coming near to me and drawing my heart and causing me to see the glory of the gospel in my brokenness. Thank you. And Lord, may I never stifle gospel joy and gospel generosity with weak excuses. Open our hearts, open our hands, open our checkbooks, open our wallets, Lord, as a church so that we become a need-meeting place that proclaims in the context of temporary support, eternal benefit. And God, in your sovereignty, do it in all circumstances. As Paul embraced you, let us, in spite of the fact that sometimes hard times are coming, let us be still generous, gospel-driven Christians. We pray in the glorious name of our Savior Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.